0: Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P.com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank. Members of DIC terms and conditions apply.
1: Hi, I'm Rachel Hampton, and you're listening to IcyMI. In case you missed it, Slates podcast about internet culture. And hello to all of my lovely listeners out there. You have officially made it halfway through the week, and now you get to celebrate by hanging out with me for half an hour. Aren't you so lucky? We haven't talked about our co host search in a while, and that's because it's over. We've made a hire that I'm so excited for. We can't officially announce who it is yet, but just know by the end of this month, you'll finally have a new voice in your earholes. And you'll never have to hear me say the phrase earholes ever again. That also means we're entering a new Icy My Era, which means that I have a request for all of you. After... Almost a year, we're finally about to have the ICYMI team back at full capacity, and we want to really make the most of it, which means that we want to hear from y'all. What do you want out of this new era? What new things do you want us to try? Are there things we haven't done in a while that you want to come back? What stories do you want to hear us cover more? What's been working for you during this transitional era, and what hasn't been? Would y'all be interested in live shows? Maybe even merch? please tell us that our email, icymi at slate.com or DM us on our Twitter at icymi underscore pod. Just a gentle reminder that I do read all of our emails and DMs, even if I don't respond. So please be honest in your feedback, but also please be kind. Um, I'm sensitive. Thank you. But Enough of housekeeping. Now onto the show. As an internet culture show, one of the aspects of influencing that we don't necessarily spend a ton of time on is the economics of it all. We obviously reference money and the impact it can have on what we're seeing online, but the real nitty-gritty numbers aren't necessarily a frequent guest on this show. Partially because the actual numbers of influencing are a little opaque. Uh, to put it mildly, who gets paid what and when and by whom is still one of the biggest questions of influencing. And it's very rarely standardized. So I was really excited to see NPR's daily economics podcast, The Indicator from Planet Money, decide to tackle this topic. In a five-part series that started on April 24th, co-hosts Adrian Ma, Darian Woods, and Waylon Wong dive deep into the money that is driving the influencer industry, an industry that some estimate as worth over $15 billion. and that number is only growing. It's a phenomenal series. In one episode, they even managed to get an influencer to spill the exact details of how much money she makes in a year, which let me tell you, it's not an easy task to pull off. So
2: for 2022, I made about $15,000, which maybe is less than you'd expect hearing um, some other large influencers.
1: I can't recommend the series highly enough, but in case you need one more little nudge to listen, I invited Adrian, Waylon, and Darian onto the show to talk about their process behind reporting out the series, the surprises they encountered, and whether there is a possible influencer union in our future. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I will be back with Adrian, Waylon, and Darian after a short break. Split Screen Kid Nation, a six part podcast from CBC. Available now.
2: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: And I'm back with Adrian Ma, Darian Woods, and Waylon Wong, the host of NPR's daily economics podcast, The Indicator from Planet Money. Like I said before the break, The Indicator just wrapped up a five part series on the rise, the economics, and the pitfalls of the influencer industry, which some estimate is now worth over $15 billion. Adrian, Darian, and Waylon are here to help me break down where all the money is going and where it's not going. Hi, y'all. Thank you so much for joining me. Before we get started, could you? You just do a little hi, I'm, just so we know everyone's voices. Hi,
3: I'm Waylon Wong.
1: Hi, I'm Darian Woods. Hey, I'm Adrienne Ma. Beautiful. Um, I was waiting for someone to say, and welcome to my YouTube channel. But...
4: (laughs) I think if we had a YouTube channel, I like the Indicator from Planet Muddy as the name of our YouTube channel. It sounds like an offshoot or a spinoff episode of our, our podcast.
1: <laughs> so the first question I usually ask all my guests is, what is your first internet memory? So what are y'alls?
5: That's a fantastic question. Um, I used to go to my dad's office where he had this thing called the internet and people didn't really know how to organize websites. So it was kind of like... Instead of text, there was just like a little village that had been drawn, and so there would be like I don't know a village representing news or something. The news, mm. like the news agency, so you'd click on that, or there'd be the the website representing games or something, and there'd be like a circus or something, and you'd click on that, and and yeah. and. One time I spent six hours just (laughs) in this kind of wormhole of the internet, and I came out in a bit of a daze, but thinking,
4: I quite enjoyed that.
1: Relatable content. That's my everyday.
4: (laughs) I don't know if I should say the first thing that pops into my head. Uh, I don't think this was literally the first internet experience I had. I think it was one of the ones that is salient in my mind, though, which is like being at a friend's house and him pulling up a porn website and being like, check this out. And I was like, oh my gosh, what are we about to do? I feel (laughs) like we're breaking the law here. Um, Before that, I don't even think about things I saw on the internet. I think about AOL CDs. I think about those mailers when they were like, get five hours online. And I thought like, five whole hours, what are we going to do with that? And then you would like churn through that. And then eventually they'd keep sending you more CDs. And they'd be like, 10 hours, 20 hours. And it was like, wow, what a crazy... What a crazy future we live in.
1: Thank you for bringing in the element that no one will ever bring up on this show. Everyone's like, my first was like cartoons and like something wholesome. And I've been waiting for someone to say what it actually is. So thank you for doing that. <laughs> I have put money on that.
4: Most people are talking about their second internet <laughs> experience.
1: <laughs> they are. And I've been waiting for someone to be brave. So thank you for doing that.
4: <laughs> oh, you're welcome.
3: <laughs> for me, um. I also remember those AOL CDs and we were an AOL family, but I remember before getting on AOL, my dad, who was a bit of an early adopter type, we tried them all because they were other services before AOL became the dominant one. So I remember puzzling my way through CompuServe and whatever some of the lesser Services were before AOL really took over, um, and I remember, you know, like being on the dial at modem, and um, I remember I felt like we were really living large because we had two phone lines, which meant that we could dedicate one just for the internet, and then the other one for phone calls. So you wouldn't risk picking up the phone and hearing the like Krush! sound and being like, "Get off the phone! I'm trying to use the internet." Um, <laughs> but yeah, I remember those early days of AOL being super excited to get emails. You know, like emailing other friends that had AOL, getting an email back and the you've got male voice and seeing like the little icon with the flag. And um, I remember kind of like venturing into little rooms and being like, is there anyone else here who likes, you know, Party of Five? You know, I was like trying to find my people. (laughs) But then being really scared because I've been told, like, do not enter chat rooms for like any reason. So then like just immediately leaving because I was like too scared even though I wanted to like find people to talk about Party of Five with. So those are my earliest memories. Well, you never found your Party of Five community. (laughs) I know. I know. Well, eventually, like there was like television without pity, but like I needed that back in those days, you know? Yeah.
1: Well... I mean, I feel like we really hit every single possible first internet memory that I've gotten so far. We've got a little bit of AOL. We've got a first, we've got a little bit of porn. We've got, you know, the physical location of having to go somewhere to access the internet, which I adore. So we're gonna fast forward like 10, 12 years. And I'm gonna ask if y'all remember the first person that you recognize as like a capital I influencer.
5: I remember loving the Sartorialist blog. I'm not sure if you guys know the Sartorialist. He would just take photos, and it might still even be up. It was just a street fashion blog of generally people in kind of really good-looking suits around New York City. Um, so I remember that would have been circa 2008. It wasn't him. It very, you wouldn't really see anything of him, but you would see his taste in, in the people that he chose and curated.
4: I'm, like, really trying to remember the first proto-influencer that I followed. But I think, like, by the time I... I wasn't really the kind of person who followed blogs, and by the time I was like, what are these blogs about? Like, that trend was already over. We've talked about this a bit among ourselves, that uh, Adrian says he's kind of like
5: the, the opposite of an early adopter. Um, I'm definitely Once a Adrian finds out about, about a trend, it's, it's on its way
4: out.
1: So he kills trends, is what you're telling me. <laughs> I, think are,
4: I think the trends may already be dead by the time I get to them, and I'm, like, mm. poking them with a stick.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... I got married in 2009 and I remember going deep into wedding blogs and I was planning my own wedding and this was like a golden age, I would say, of wedding blogs. I mean, the the fire hose of content you could drink from in terms of like wedding invitations and dresses and favors and like everything, you know, it was like there was so much inspiration out there for how to do your wedding. And I got really into this one site called Wedding Bee where they had all different real people, real brides planning their weddings and you could follow them and they would post very regularly tons of photos. And I got so into it. And there was a community, like a message board attached too. So then I got really into the message boards. We were trading so many ideas and I was following all these women just like ravenously online. And I remember that a few of them held a meetup in Chicago where I live. And I went to the meetup as a wedding bee meetup. And I remember... Being at the table at this restaurant or we're at a bar or something and being like, I can't believe I'm seeing them in real life. And I was like too shy to actually talk to any of them because it's like I really wanted to tell this one woman that I like loved all her craft projects and thought she did so amazing. But I was too shy and it felt so weird to see them IRL. But I like very deliberately went to this meetup because I was like fangirling a little bit over these brides. It was so strange when I think about it now.
1: I love that. The IRL meetup of that era was so, cause no one knew what anyone looked like at that point in the internet. Like now when you do a meetup, you're like, at least I have a general vibe. I have a profile picture or something. But back then it was like, I'm meeting Homestuck fan 25 at this bar. <laughs> <laughs> True. Um. This is a perfect segue into you your series, which I really loved. I'm always really impressed by how much ground you guys cover in each episode. I was also really interested to see that you decided to do a five part series, which is a divergence from your usual format. And so I wanted to know how did you decide on the influencer industry as a topic, and when. In the ideation process, did you realize this needs to be five episodes?
5: So this came about at a a retreat where we met in person. So we all live across the U.S. and we don't very often see each other in person. Mm. Uh, And so we had our our meetup and I finally learned what, um, you know, Economist's uh, fan 365 looked like, (laughs) uh, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and, And we were kind of like thinking about... Our audience, and you know how to attract you know a broader audience, and so we, we like doing uh, a series maybe once a year, and so we're thinking about what could be this year's one, and our producer Corey Bridges piped up and said, "I think we should do a series on influencers." A survey of Gen Z shows that one in four want to be an influencer as a career, and we kind of just all around the room said that sounds like an amazing idea which is not necessarily always the case usually there's yeah. maybe a couple of silent people or or people who might actively disagree with an idea it's not it was just unanimous agreement that this sounds like <laughs> something that's not covered uh, in the way that we would cover it in terms of the economics and the industry uh, and we're just thinking of all the different angles it could take and so yeah we thought we gotta gotta plow ahead and and so that, that's kind of how it started
3: yeah, and I think because our episodes are time boxed at 10 minutes, we realized that to really tackle the topic in the way we wanted, we would have to do multiple episodes that trying to fit, let's say, history, economics, and pitfalls into 10 minutes would be a complete non starter. And so Corey did this really wonderful job of sketching out what each episode would sound like and to come up with a discrete topic for each day. And then uh, and then we were off to the races.
1: There was a connection that one of your guests Emily Hun made in your first episode that really struck me, which is that the origins of the influencer industry lie in the 2008 recession. And it's one of those facts that make a lot of intuitive sense, but I don't think I would have quite conceptualized in that way. Could you explain a bit more about that?
3: Absolutely. So I talked to this researcher, Emily Hun, she's at the University of Pennsylvania, and she was trying to make it in the media industry in 08-09. She was also fresh out of college. And she told me that everyone kept saying to her, oh, you should just start a blog. You know, she's like trying to work at like a magazine or in a publishing company or something. She kept getting this advice like, oh, just start a blog. And she really started to think about why is this the advice that young people are being given, right? You have these people graduating into a lousy job market and they're in, you know, economic precarity and they're given this advice like, you should go start a blog. And the way Emily explained it, it was this perfect constellation of factors where you have all these young people in precarity kind of looking to just make their way in the world. You have the iPhone, which means that you have this very high quality computer with a phone in your pocket at all times. And then you do have these platforms like Facebook and Tumblr. Those are the the big ones at the time where you could really express yourself and maybe even build a little bit of a following. You have Blogger, which was the platform owned by Google. And so... People, especially young people, turn to blogging as a way, not only as a vehicle of self-expression, but also to maybe build a following that might turn into something that might be more stable or yield something better than whatever kind of like dead-end job you were able to couple together in that economy. And uh, and so for her, that's where she starts the story um, of the modern influencer industry, because you have this generation of people who gets really used to broadcasting themselves online and just creating content about their life and building a following and building community around their
1: online presence. It really kind of puts into focus how closely influencing is tied with economic precarity, (laughs) (laughs) which is not something I think about a lot. But there's a huge wave of influencers created during the pandemic, which most people, I think, ascribe to everyone was home, but Mm -hmm. might more accurately be ascribed to the fact that a lot of people lost their jobs.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. I think you cannot separate out those things. And I think even though... Influencing, especially the form it takes today, where you are kind of at the mercy of these huge companies Mm -hmm. and their tech flat platforms. And so the illusion of control is a little bit of an illusion. But you do get that feeling of, well, I am in control of at least my content and my destiny. I can't control the algorithm, but I can control what I'm presenting to the world, the story I'm telling about myself. And I feel like a lot of things feel super out of control right now and have for many years. And so maybe that plays into it, too.
1: I mean, kind of speaking of this, one of the episodes in your series was about the economics of influencing, like the actual numbers, which over the past few years, I've been covering the internet. I found finding the actual numbers is one of the hardest details to track Mm. down. Industry experts often call influencing economics like a bit of a Wild West. And I'm curious as to whether y'all still agree with that after doing this series.
5: So I spoke to a guy called Ryan Hilliard, who's a general manager at a company called Hype Auditor. And I guess that their whole purpose is to match brands with influencers but then to kind of strip back any kind of nonsense around fake followers or you know how much is this actually likely to be valuable to the brand Uh, and so he does surveys with influencers and finds you know roughly what they're earning how much sponsorship they're getting and that kind of thing Uh, and so his numbers were were quite interesting and, and showed just how variable it was for influencers like you really can't say you know you have 50,000 followers, therefore you should be earning X. Um, But we did do some estimates um, based on those numbers some midpoints. Our influencer who we profiled, Kendall Hoyt, had 500,000 followers on TikTok, just over 100,000 on Instagram. And based on his numbers and calculations, he thought she could comfortably be earning around $65,000 a year. So that's Definitely enough to kind of live off, um, especially early in her career, which she is, but it requires a lot of hustle. It requires spending a lot of time working with brands, soliciting brands in a way that makes it a real full-time job and not something that's kind of this uh, whimsical dream of just, you know, trying on some clothes and getting paid for it.
3: I think that, like, it can be really hard to get kind of, like, consistent, comparable information just because influencers are freelancers, right? And so, like, in any freelance pursuit, you can have dry periods and you can have very fertile periods. and. I feel like if you looked at a graph of their income over the year, over two years, you would probably just see it kind of being very volatile right because you know we were able to get some information like okay like how much do you charge for an Instagram post for example so that's a useful data point but then it's like are you getting a post every week or like are you going three months where you're going like gangbusters and then six months where there's like nothing right and I talked to one influencer Cafe Maddie she does cooking videos where she said that like it can be a little boom or bust you know and sometimes she has a lot of posts lined up and then sometimes it just things just dry up and it can be really difficult to have visibility into like where your next bit of income is is coming from and I think that also kind of translates to like us trying to find out more information about it It it's like can be really all over the place
5: I mean it varies by so many factors as well like what kind of influencer are you are you a fitness influencer they tend to earn more than fashion influencers for example Mm. Um, maybe because of who's sponsoring them what is your audience profile? Are they likely to be clicking on those sponsored posts and buying things? What kind of income are they earning? All of these things make such a varied picture about what you can live off. Um, Overall, Ryan said that you kind of need to be in the top 1% of influencers to be comfortably having a solid salary where, you know, it's clear that you shouldn't be working a full-time job somewhere else or, or a part-time job somewhere else. He thinks you need to get close to that 1 million follower mark, which just seems extraordinarily high. I mean, I, I feel like that's almost approaching celebrity status myself, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, he definitely threw away any kind of romantic notions of of this being an easy (laughs) career to me.
4: It's like the industry, in in one sense, it seems to be beyond its Wild West phase in that there is like a very robust industry around it. Lots of companies investing money, a lot of people like trying to make a living this way. I've, you know, colleagues have even told me that they've come across like classes in MBA Mm -hmm. programs that are like teaching influencer marketing and that sort of thing. So in that sense, it's not the Wild West. But on the other hand, I feel like after thinking about the influencer industry and like talking to people, it Still seems Wild Westy in that the rules of the game seem to change. To Darian's point about like to make a full time living at it, you have to be in that 1%. It feels Wild Westy in the sense that like people are sort of banking on hitting a, a lucky streak.
3: I feel like when you're making content, it's like there's like the people at the tippy tippy top and then this yep. like yeah. incredibly long tail. <laughs>
1: yes. Darren, you mentioned it made you kind of throw away this romantic notion of the field. Are there any other kind of romantic notions y'all feel like you had about influencing that were kind of dashed?
5: Yeah. Well, I actually had a bunch of influencers turn me down to open up their books. So I'm curious about whether... It was because some of these influencers had, you know, pictures from hotels with views and, you know, trips to Cancun or or whatever it was. And, and whether opening up the books might show that they weren't having such a glamorous, you know, amount of money behind the scenes, or alternatively, maybe it was very high and that could alienate people. Um, but I'm thinking it might have been more the former. Uh, and so it was interesting having some, some influences turn me down. and And I do wonder whether some of these lifestyles what happens if you turn the camera around to the other side I'm, I'm very curious
4: from the outside i feel like i can understand not wanting to make that kind of stuff public because you are essentially negotiating against yourself once you say like here's how much i'll work for here's how mm-hmm. much some other company paid me and then like when, when other potential advertisers hear that, they can sort of reverse engineer and be like, okay, so that might give them a leg up in negotiating deals.
5: That's true. What I've learned is every kind of sponsorship deal is a negotiation. There aren't really standardized rates and every influencer thinks they're special for various reasons. Um, every company wants to negotiate, of course. And so uh, it's really interesting and I can understand some reluctance to speak publicly about it.
3: I learned how hard it is just to take a freaking photo. Like I... <laughs> To promote the series, I bought one of those influencer headbands, the pink ones, you know, that all the um, skincare influencers have. I got, like, a knockoff version on Amazon of that pink headband. And I was like, I'm going to take a cute photo so I can put it on the Planet Money Instagram and stuff to, like, promote my episode It took me like two days to take a selfie in this dumb headband. I I did like a full face of makeup. I was like, maybe I'll try a mirror selfie. And I had my 10 year old who's obsessed with influencers trying to coach me. She was like, do duck lips. And I was like, God, I'm not doing duck lips. Okay, I I was like, that's not on brand for me. I can't be out here doing duck lips. The first night ended with like no usable photos. I was just like, I can't believe people do
1: this all day. It's so hard. It's so true how hard it is to take a selfie. I don't think we talk about it enough. One of the other things that's really hard about influencing that Darian mentioned is how there's no standardized rates. After a short break, we're gonna talk about some of the possible solutions to that, including an influencer union. Hi, y'all. If you love our podcast, then please consider subscribing to Slate Plus. We were just talking about the economics of influencing. Here are the economics of podcasting. Slate Plus supports this show. why would not be possible without the support of Slate Plus subscribers. And when you subscribe to Slate Plus, you get no ads on any Slate podcast, including this one. You will also get bonus segments or episodes on shows like the new season of Slow Burn, the new Dear Prudence and so many more. You'll also get unlimited reading on the Slate website, which means you get access to every single article and advice column on Slate without ever, ever, ever hitting the paywall. Just visit slate.com slash ICYMI plus to sign up. That is slate.com slash ICYMI plus.
0: These are the things that I look for in influencers when I'm hiring them for brands. Budgets are a real thing. I have never not once worked with a client that is like, we have an unlimited budget, go wild. We are given a set budget that we then have to distribute between different influencers. So that's why we negotiate your rates because we do really want to work with you. We understand your worth and we really, really want to pay you, but we also have to meet a quota.
1: So something that came up a few times in this series is the kind of lack of collective bargaining power that influencers have because of this kind of lack of transparency. And I've been thinking about this for a while. And I'm curious as to whether any of you think that's something that could change anytime soon. I've always wondered if there's ever going to be like an influencer union.
3: I think there's some interesting moves in the industry. There's one professional organization that, you know, we didn't get a chance to include in the series, but they're called the American Influencer Council. And this is kind of like a big attempt to put some professionalization around the industry and have like a professional association like a trade association basically where they have you know like events and training and resources and I think that's interesting I don't know if they're going to kind of go in like a labor rights direction you know in terms of like unionizing but I think they are trying to have some standards and norms to help the industry along and then in terms of like unionization I mean you look at what gig workers are doing and they're essentially you know freelancers independent contractors as well. And obviously, it takes a lot of work. Uh, It's not easy to unionize, but there is some movement in that direction in some other industries, Um, you know, whether it's delivery drivers or Mm -hmm. rideshare drivers. And so... I feel like there's probably, if not a full template, there is something to be learned from, if you are this diffuse and you are kind of all at the mercy of a few really big companies, how do you organize as workers? Um, and there might be something there. It
5: really could be, although our reporting does uh, has found that union rates are at an all-time low since records began, <laughs> so the trend is not uh, uh, favorable for unionization. You and your fact, all
3: right. <laughs>
5: public perception of unions is pretty high though so uh people will be cheering them on if they do form one
1: i mean that's what's funny is because one in four zoomers want to be influencers they're also one of the most progressive generations that have the most positive view of unions so it Mm. seems almost natural to think that if they want to do this they wouldn't try to collectively come together in some way to make it more equitable
5: yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there's something that happens. I mean, we're seeing the Hollywood writers strike at the moment, so yeah. you know, in some ways these are content creators of the
4: 20th century, uh, mm-hmm. so why not for the 21st? Since the barrier to entry for social media to become like a social media influencer so low like anyone with the phone can do it. I wonder if it's possible because it like it would seem to just add a layer of bureaucracy that doesn't really like a lot of people don't need in order to make a name for themselves. That's also one of the challenges of getting into it is like, since like anybody can pick up their phone and try to do it, there is like a lot of things to learn as an independent person trying to make a living in it. And I think there is a role for an organization to help disseminate knowledge among creators to make sure that they are getting paid what they ought to get paid or not ending up in situations that are unfair to them. But I also think, I think the thing with a lot of unions is that they work because the people who are members in them are similarly situated, and they're not competing against each other. They work for the same kind of employer. Whereas with influencer marketing, it seems to me like kind of a zero-sum game. Everybody's competing for the same set of eyeballs. And I wonder if that's like a fundamental obstacle to people organizing.
3: But that's an interesting point you raise about scarcity mindset, I guess, like in the attention economy, you know, and like, what are the incentives of the attention economy? And is the attention economy like inherently a Zero sum game, right? Where like the pie maybe doesn't get that much bigger, so you are just fighting over the same size pie. It's not a pie that's really growing. That is a very interesting question.
5: Well, from talking to Ryan, the pie is growing because this is essentially just advertising money sloshing around, whether it's in the form of a billboard or a side of a bus mm-hmm. or on a TV show, and, and and a lot of companies are finding that there's real advantages to influencers. You know, Google keywords are a lot more expensive than they used to be. Instagram ads are more expensive than they used to be. Um, I think we, we, we talked to a range of people who in the industry who are actually quite optimistic about, about the industry's prospects, even with a potentially slowing economy mm-hmm. right now.
1: So last year, the CEO of Nation, which is one of like the biggest influencer marketing agencies, gave Forbes like his list of predictions for the future of influencing. And one of them was that social influence will be the new bachelor's degree. Basically that to have a career you need to learn how to use social media in the way that influencers do (laughs) and i'm curious if you all agree with that
5: i don't agree i think what i've discovered is that social media influencing at least in its current form in terms of tiktok and instagram videos i think it seems yeah like a pretty niche thing that i mean it's a niche thing that a lot of people want to get into Um, I think there will be more people doing it, but I mean, I think we've been through cycles like this before where it felt like every journalist needed to have a Twitter presence, for example, and, Mm. and, and time has proven that that's not true.
3: No, I think I'm with you, Darian, because I am also old enough to have lived through a couple media cycles of like, oh, every journalist needs a personal brand, you know? And so there's this big rush to set up your little beachheads everywhere and have a personal brand. And I have never done that well with building a personal brand, whatever that is. And I'm like doing okay. You know what I mean? It has not like tanked my career. So, I mean, I think it's important to be aware of these things and to harness them in a smart way if you choose to. I don't know if it rises to the level of equivalency to a bachelor's degree.
4: Well, I certainly hope that, I mean, I guess if if that is the way things are going, then uh, I'm glad I, I managed to get my own career started before social influence became the currency of the day. I have no idea how to collect social capital or spend it or deploy it. Um, I just log on to social media and then immediately, like, I start breaking out in a flop sweat. Um, I don't know. Yeah, change is happening so fast and people are kind of reaching for whatever seems logical in the short term and saying that that is the best strategy for long-term success.
5: I mean, I think there's a lot of availability bias here. We see the successes. We see, you know, all the people on our our TikTok feed or whatever it is. um, But the reality is a lot of people aren't doing that and uh, coping in life fine.
1: One of the things that was brought up in the final episode of this series is that there's like no way to avoid influencers. I mean, at this point, it's kind of like trying to avoid celebrities, but also wanting to watch television, which is Mm. just a mismatch that doesn't exist. But something I've been thinking about, the way influencing makes its way into other industries, especially public facing ones, it almost feels like, especially in journalism, as it contracts more and more, as that precarity that created influencing becomes just the norm, you almost have to become an influencer to maintain a presence in journalism, as in who's going to keep getting a job over and over again as fewer and fewer publications exist? Or who's going to have money after your publication is folded? It's the people who can convert their audience from NPR to a newsletter to a podcast. And so I guess I'm curious as to how y'all think about that, the future of media, unfortunately, and also like... (laughs) the way like the Washington Post TikTok guy will be able to start a TikTok that's pretty lucrative if Washington Post lays them off.
5: Yeah, I mean, a lot of what we do is f- is very collaborative and, and it would almost be between Planet Money and The Indicator, there, there have been moments where we could have gone more down that personality route. But there, I think there are real advantages to having a more collaborative route and that we can kind of have a people turn on the dial and know what to expect, getting fresh, accurate, fun content you know every time they they open it and having a whole team of people who can work and when somebody has a sick break or when somebody has a vacation we know we can always uh, have that consistent product
3: I have a lot of anxiety about like the state of things in media and I'm like uh, on this team, I'm the newest. And so I was like most recently on the job market. And so it's like it's terrible being on the job market, (laughs) especially in media. And we just went through like a very brutal round of layoffs at NPR. So it's just it's been a hard time. And I do think about this because unfortunately, I think to be competitive in a media job market, especially as outlets fold and everything. If you are up for a job against another candidate and maybe your reporting, your journalistic output is basically the same, but that person has more of a social media following, I do think that gives that person the edge, you know, that like if you are the hiring manager or the editor making that decision, wouldn't you take the person who has a following and people who really already like and trust this person's work, like wouldn't you take that over someone who... People don't recognize the name, you know, so Mm. I do think about it. Uh, It does give me a little bit of anxiety because I think that the skills that I've spent most of my career honing around like reporting and writing, they don't necessarily lend themselves to building a successful social media presence. Like if I have any success in building a social media presence, it's like almost by accident or by like happenstance or whatever. It's not something I've cultivated because I don't actually think I have those skills. And like to Adrian's point, it does take entrepreneurial drive. Like it takes a lot of dedicated work to do that, that I haven't put in.
1: All right, that was Adrian Mon, Darian Woods, and Waylon Wong, the host of NPR's Daily Economics podcast, the indicator from Planet Money. You can hear them every single day talking about economics. Once again, I can't recommend the series about influencers more. Go check it out. And that's the show. I will be back in your feed on Saturday, so please subscribe. It is the best way to never miss an episode. Please leave a rating and review at Apple or Spotify and tell your friends about us. Tell your influencers about us. Ask them how much money they're making and then tell us about that. Also tell us all your thoughts about the show and what you want from the new ICYMI era. You can tell us on Twitter, at icymi_pod, underscore pod and you can also drop us a note at ICYMI at slate.com Icymi is produced by sierra spragley ritz and me rachel hampton daisy rosario is our senior supervising producer and alicia montgomery is slate's vp of audio see you online or on a wedding blog